Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we are looking at commodities. Are we in a commodity super cycle? Is it a bubble about to burst? And more importantly, what is driving it? Tune the broadcast and we'll look forward to seeing you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my faithful outsider, Mr. Mitchell Orangel. Faithful I am, Mr. B. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And to jump straight into it, I really need to pick your brain today mm-hmm. because there's a lot going on. It's certainly the talk of the town at the moment here in Australia. Commodity prices or the commodity super cycle. Iron ore, copper, gold, Bitcoin even, we're going to touch on. Plenty to go through. Indeed, and uh, you know, listening to the, the reports come out of the miners last week, I think they're all pretty keen not to talk about a commodity super cycle and using that label, but there's no doubt that's what we're talking about. And yeah, we're such an iron ore centric exporter with record price on iron ore. We've seen colossal prices come out of the big miners in terms of profit. Um, you know, BHP, Fortescue, we have brilliant numbers coming out of there. But is it just about uh, iron ore prices? And the answer is no, it's actually far more broad based than that. And yes, we are enjoying boom times. Interesting shift because really for the last sort of six to ten months, all we've been talking really is the 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 new businesses of technology driving the world economy. Are we seeing a, re, a reversion, if you will, back to old school, dig it out of the ground and sell it? And I think that's maybe where we're at. I guess that's the question, and we'll certainly cover that off at the very end. And probably a good place to start with that is to talk a little bit about where we were nearly say nine, ten months ago when COVID first began. What did we see with commodity prices? Well, markets hate uncertainty, Mitch, and you know that's the thing. When things are uncertain, things slow down. Um, you know, when the pandemic first hit, nobody really knew what to expect. Uh, and you saw a, a real logjam in the commodities markets. And probably the best example of that, of course, would be oil, um, you know, the world's most heavily traded commodity, um, where we actually saw, believe it or not, negative prices That's crazy. for a barrel of oil. What does that mean for those who don't know what, what exactly negative prices actually refers to? So obviously there's a cost of production with oil. Uh, let's say it's 20, 30 bucks a barrel, depending on where in the world you produce it. The futures markets are largely where the oil is traded uh, you know, in terms of um, you know, the, the, the price mechanism uh, for setting price. And it got to the point where the world was awash with oil, but demand had slowed down because of the pandemic. You think about it, no one was driving anywhere, certainly no one was flying anywhere. So the world literally was awash with oil. It no longer needed it, right? Not being bought to be used, but it had to be stored somewhere. Oil is something that requires storage. You know, you can't put a couple of barrels in the shed. It requires major, uh, major storage facilities. And so it got to the point, I think it was April uh, 2020, where we saw negative prices because people were actually being paid to take physical delivery of oil. Never happened in history before. Uh, and certainly bell ringing at the bottom of the market, you know, you're getting paid to take delivery of oil rather than having to buy it. You'd be laughing now when we can chat about where prices have really gone. Uh, I think OPEC has it about $40 a barrel right now, which is a pretty big shift. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's, there's been some big price moves in there, and I suspect we're going to see more as we see the economic stimulus around the world continuing to fuel the economic recovery we're seeing. And there are also some country-specific factors, especially in the US as well, um, which uh, which have certainly impacted on it. And I think, you know, $65, $70, $75 over the next month or two is certainly not out of the question. That's a nice outlook. And you look at something like the oil ETF, triple O, 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 here yeah. in Australia, it's up 24% in just the last year, which is a pretty pretty big gain. It is, and I mean, it marks the fact that even though people aren't flying, the global economy is growing. Uh, and, 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 and the economic rack and ruin that was you know, portrayed when we went into the pandemic mode hasn't really happened. And particularly if you look at the US, and we'll get more specific on that in a few moments. So yeah, there's been a, a, a driver there, but of course, on the other side, supply and demand is how prices set. So not only has there been you know, reasonable demand for oil, but OPEC has, has done a very, very good job of constraining, well, depending on your perspective, I suppose, but a good job of constraining supply 
in order to try and push prices higher. You know, all of the countries uh, that are members of OPEC have a finite amount of oil and pumping it out of the ground when it's you know, $10 a barrel is not very cost effective when it could be $70 or $80 a barrel. And so they've been really trying to drag the chain and slow production down to get that price up to get a better return on the natural assets that they have. It makes total sense. And from my understanding, it was Saudi Arabia that really cut their production by somewhat 30, 40%, is that right? Yeah, I mean, they put the brakes on for sure. I guess the challenge that OPEC have is that there are a number of countries, let's say rogue countries that operate outside of OPEC, you know, Venezuela being one, Russia being another, uh, that are both you know, enormous producers of oil and, and they're not constrained by OPEC's central policy decision-making in terms of production quotas. So you know, if you're in Venezuela uh, and your economy is, is just gone you know, imploded effectively and you've got this enormous natural reserve to bring in much needed foreign currency, you'll be pumping as much of it out of the ground as you can. And that's exactly what's gone on. So whilst OPEC, all with a pretty uh, you know, iron fist in terms of their producing countries, You've got those rogue nations that sit outside of that, which has been a bit of a disruptor. And you probably see Russia and Saudi having a, a fairly colourful conversation around that in terms of production quotas and things like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, but that's just a little bit of play with commodities there. Well, what about copper? Let's talk about yeah. copper. It's at a nine-year high in terms of price. What's yeah. your thoughts there? Look, I think there's actually a global shortage of copper right now, and that's going to be pushing um, pricing even higher. Um, copper is an interesting one because... Yeah, if I put my economist, I mean, I'm an economist by qualification, if I put my economics hat on for a moment, copper prices are probably the single best bellwether um, index, if you will, or one of the best ones for looking at the overall strength uh, of the global economy. You know, if you think about the uses of copper, you know, plumbing obviously is one of them, or with plastic, electric componentry, uh, and plenty of other things in the manufacturing space, um, you know, demand has been incredibly strong um, in, in for copper, so it's certainly been pushing prices higher. And that's reflected through you know, stocks in that space too. If I take one of my favorite trading stocks, Freeport Macaran over in the US, FXC, um, yeah, that's up 126% in just the last six months. That's crazy. And it's one of those that just sits under the radar. You know, people talk about iron ore, people talk about oil. Um, but you know, copper is it's actually a very tricky commodity to trade. Futures have done plenty of uh, futures trading. Big contract, space. right? Big contract, big tick value, not ideal for your average retail investor. Um, but gee, that's just been motoring along in the background, that's for sure. And so, you know, all of those companies, including our Aussie ones, of course, that, that have exposure to copper have also done rather well. Look at BHP's result, 80% of its profits attributable to iron ore, and the rest of it comes from the balance of the portfolio, but they, of course, also have copper assets and they're looking to increase that. And they're up 27% over just the last year, which is clearly a representation of that as well. To chat about iron ore, which is really the main talk of the town mm -hmm. right now, because we've seen prices go through the roof, and we've also seen companies like Fortescue Metals, for example, yeah. report great earnings come out with massive dividends. Mm. Why? Oh, I'm very happy to see that Fortescue dividend. As a <laughs> I know and, you were. And people saying it was a surprise. I mean, Brian Freddie was going to tell you it was going to be a big number. But uh, look, I mean, there's an insatiable demand for steel in China. They've tried to reboot their, their economy uh, with, uh, with steel production. And, and, and of course, you know, iron ore out of Australia is a very high quality uh, material. And we've been a net beneficiary of that. So, yeah, that's really, really helped. And, you know, the, the major competitor for Australian iron ore is, uh, is down in... Uh, in Brazil, and you know, Brazil has been uh, caught up quite nastily, I suppose, with the, the, the COVID virus and the economy's all got shut down down there. So you haven't had that competition coming uh, from down there either, in which case it's really left it as a three-horse race, Fortescue, Rio, and 
and uh, BHP for, for, for filling the demand for Chinese iron ore. So it's been fantastic for our producers. It certainly has. And Fortescue's share price is up somewhat 120% mm. in just 12 months. Fantastic, hey? Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Great for shareholders. You know, there's almost $8 once great, upon a time. Great Australian story, too. Great Australian story. The price of actual physical iron ore is also up nearly 100%. Mm. Now, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here, AB, just to take us off topic a little bit, but also very much so related. We had a question from a client. Uh, a couple of days ago on the phone, Larissa, she'll know uh, who I'm talking about. Mm. Our reliance on China is pretty heavy when it comes to iron ore. Now, if we see that relationship with China and the tensions increase, where does that leave companies like Fortescue? I think we're fairly insulated at the moment because there's no natural competition. It's rather like Facebook. There's no competitors. So <laughs> run roughshod if you so wish, but um, that will change over time. And we've alluded to it previously. You know, China's got interest in Guinea in Africa, where they've funded a, a, a sorry, they've gone an iron ore miner. Uh, and at some point, Vale in, in, in Brazil will come back online and be more competitive uh, on the global stage. So, you know, there are competitors there, but for the moment, really is open field running. You know, China's also sort of played hardball, I suppose, with a lot of Australian exports. Um, you know, wine is probably the obvious one, um, you know, where you know, our luxury brands and our wine industry have really been touched up quite badly. Um, coal is another one. Uh, the advantage that Australia has with its raw materials is they're typically very, very, very high quality. So, you know, if you look at um, the coal exports, for example, to China, there's a very, very high carbon content, which is what you need um, in the in the alchemy of making steel, iron ore, and and and, uh, and, and you know, thermal, uh, sorry, carbon coal uh, are required to do that. Uh, metallurgic coal, and they've tried to replace the Aussie coal with a lower quality, and it's producing a poor quality steel on the back end of it. So, you know, we're very fortunate that we've got you know good quality resources going in there. But it's not just us that are affected by that. You know, China is a global superpower and people have got to realise that. And sure, its economic growth has been incredible. Um, but also, if you look at the volume of resources and the processes, we've talked about steel. But what about when we've talked about lithium in previous podcasts? You know, 94% of the world's lithium um, is roasted and then exported out of China. So, you know, China has got a stranglehold on not just the Aussie economy, but globally in so many different ways, given how important it is as not only a manufacturer, but also a processor of raw materials, rare earths being another example of that, to turn them into the commodities that people then need to put into manufacturing. So, you know, the higher end of the thing. So yeah, it's a very, very real risk. Uh, and it puts China in an unenviable position. And that's why, you know, the diplomacy uh, is, is, is probably the better order of the day than Sabre rattling, saying, look, we're not gonna do business anymore. We're just gonna work out where the pieces of the puzzle are and sure. make them fit together. There's certainly a juggernaut economy, they're huge. And I guess that lies the question, if we're gonna talk about a commodity super cycle, that really is defined by iron ore. Mm. Where is your view on prices of iron ore moving forward? Look, I think we're gonna see them, I don't know, that necessarily we're gonna see it push that much higher. I could be totally wrong on that. The key thing with forecasting, you're either absolutely right or absolutely wrong. <laughs> and that's kind of, as a trader, why I don't like um, trying to trade direction, I work on non-directional strategy a little more. Um, but yeah, they are at pretty heady heights right now. Um, and given, you know, it's China is the world steel producer to all intents and purposes, I don't see a lot more to the upside there, but I don't see the de decline in price coming anytime soon either, which is very, very good for our miners. But we've talked about, you know, we've talked about iron ore, we've talked about oil, we've talked about copper, but we can look at this commodity super cycle also in the eggs as well. So if we take, for example, soybeans, I'm trading soybeans for probably about 12, 14 years. Wow. Uh, so you know, soybeans are in the teens. It's just uh, like, wow. So there, again, you've got a commodity price that, again, is a close to a nine-year high in the, in the food space. Obviously, soybeans are used in agricultural food as well for, for, for producing animals. But yeah, it's, it's just incredible to see this. And I guess it bodes the question. Here we are in, a, in, in, in coming out of a pandemic 
in a world economy that's not that robust, so how on earth, putting your economics hat on again, can these commodity prices be as high as they are? And, and, and I think my view on that would be very, very simple. If we look at the amount of fiscal stimulus, the amount of money that's being pumped into the global economy by the various central banks around the world, each month, about 0.7% of annual GDP is pushed into markets as new money. It's just mind-blowing the amount of money that's being pushed into markets from central banks right now. And that, more than anything, is providing a very, very natural support. The world is awash with cash at the moment, and that will drive through, and you'll see that expansionary phase that we're seeing in commodity prices. 0.7% per month of annual GDP is going in as a stimulus. It's no wonder prices are going up. That's that's crazy. You think about what that must be on a dollar, an actual dollar. It's, it's a frightening it's number. Huge. It's a frightening number. And at some point, maybe depending on whether it's a, a, you, you're a buyer of you know modern economic theory, you're going to have to pay it back. Maybe you won't. Uh, but this money's being <laughs> printed at some point. I mean, it's just it's just insane. The one commodity that we haven't touched on, of course, is gold, which yes. has also had a pretty decent run. But I think it's losing a bit of its luster, and, 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 and it's unusual for me to comment on what I'm about to. But I think you know, for a lot of people that have been gold bugs and have bought gold as you know, an inflation hedge, there's no inflation anywhere to speak of at the moment, so that's an ambit point. There's no yield, so gold's okay, it doesn't yield, but then there's no real yield in markets anyway at the moment. Um, the attraction of it um, has waned a little bit, I think, in favour of Bitcoin. You heard it? Yeah. Really? I know you mentioned this to me at the beginning, yeah. but I really can't get my head around why that would be. They seem like totally opposite. If, if you're looking at a natural hedge outside of financial markets, which traditionally gold is, you know. That's the safe haven for investors yeah. when things are getting crazy. Yeah, right? I mean, nuts. Let's, let's get out of equities and pile into gold, gold um, and, and wait for the world to end, which still hasn't happened, by the way. And, you know, it becomes We're a still Harry now. Yeah. Who and Harry, uh, we haven't seen the doubt 5,000 yet, so over 30 now. I'll have that bottle of wine when, uh, when you're ready to post it. Um, the reality is, though, that as an alternate hedge outside of the traditional economic model, getting into something like crypto or Bitcoin being the example for that is, is exactly what that's set up to do. It's a non-conforming financial asset that's not correlated to the world's economy and it's not controlled by anybody in that space either. And you know, Bitcoin's valuation, if it had a market cap, it's a trillion dollars right now. Which is just insane. We just saw Elon Musk pile in 1.5 billion just last week. Well, 1.5 billion is a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket to something that's valued at a trillion. That gives you an idea of the simple, uh, you know, by an order, how much crypto is really growing. And I think that one there is probably taking a little bit of the heat out of gold uh, because the traditional gold investors, uh, maybe not the traditional gold investors, but the uh, new age people that are speculators in markets that ordinarily would look to gold as, a, as, a, as an alternative to being in financial markets, certainly have been piling into crypto. And you've seen it in super funds, you know, the amount of um, crypto going into self money super funds is on the up. Instead of five or 10 grand parcels, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars now, and it will continue to rise. It's crazy. They're, it's really quite wacky when you think about where, where things are going and where they've yeah. been. I guess the question it's is- It's also a commodity, it's a finite resource. It is, that's uh, true. That, that by definition, yes, you're right. So I guess the question is, A, I mean, that's, there's a lot to take in there, mm. and I'm, I'm a bit dumbfounded myself because there's plenty of information. Where do you get this kind of fundamental analysis from, and how do you actually trade on it? Because we're here to make money, right? Absolutely. Look, I've always been a big believer. Um, you, know, you can dive pretty deep on fundamentals. A lot of people's definition on fundamentals is PEs and things like that, which we talked about previously. But it's, it's, it's not a great tool to use. I think getting a gauge on where tailwinds are in markets is a far better way of using economics. And look, this has been my bread and butter for 30 years. So of course I can sit here and talk about what we're doing within the commodities markets and, and why they're doing what they're doing. 
The reality is, uh, for somebody sitting at home listening to this now, how do you get up to speed with it? It's a little bit of following the news and understanding what the major drivers are within the business. You know, what are the core three things that drive a business? We take Fortescue, iron ore prices, number one. Number two, iron ore prices. Number three, um, iron ore prices, you know, <laughs> because that's what it does. It's a one-trick pony and it's very, very good at it. It's also a risk on that business if you see a decline in that space. Sure. Versus something like BHP or RIA, which has got a more diversified portfolio of holdings, even though Arnold's a huge part of what they do, they do have other asset bases uh, within it. So finding out what actually drives that business. And then secondly, looking to see you know, what, what demand and prices look like for that commodity. So if we take the antithesis of this being coal, I mean, you know, if you're a coal miner, you're like a dog with fleas. No one wants to give you a pat right now. It's like push it in the corner and forget it exists almost. Yeah. Uh, and so there's no tailwind there as people are trying to move away or the agenda is moving away to net zero and further away from you know, burning thermal, um, you know, coal for energy, basically. So you know, getting a bit of a grip on those fundamentals is not that hard. And then being able to join the dots, that's where the skill comes in, Mitch. You know, it's okay having a piece of news, but to join the dots and say, okay, copper prices are getting stronger, where do I invest? And knowing that there are companies like, you know, Fruit Corner Crown, or you can go to an ETF or, you know, a, a broader commodities ETF to give you diversified exposure if that's what you want to do, or, or triple O if you just wanted oil, um, you know, that's where the finessing of the skill comes in. Everybody's got an opinion, but it's can you take that opinion and translate it into profit, which is the key. Wow, mm. that certainly is a, is a great explanation and it makes it seem a lot more simpler. And I guess if anyone wants to know how to do that, where do you suggest? Come see me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it actually is, it's one of those things, um, I want you to think about sort of, you know, a nice hot day, you're about to go and jump in the ocean and cool down and you kind of dip a toe in and you're a bit cold. And you, I don't know, and you're humming hard where you can just dive in. And, and it's the anticipation of doing something is always worse than the, the event itself. Trading is the same. You can live in your own head and you can think this is way too confusing and these guys have just laid it out in a really basic format. Is as basic as that. Yeah, it really is. People make it far more complex than it really needs to be. What's the driver for the business in terms of if it's a commodity, what is that commodity price doing? But more importantly, why is it doing that? Is it sustainable? And then is that something using a litmus test methodology? Is it something that's likely to continue over the, the, the period of time that we're interested in trading? And if it is, plant the flag, get in the trade. So to finish off with one last question here, AB, commodity super cycle, yes or no? Look, I think we could be at the start of an equity super cycle in all fairness. Um, you know, I listened to someone I respect a, a little while back and he said this is the start of a three, three year bull market for, uh, for, for, for stocks in general. Um, you know, and commodities are coming from a, a pretty overdone position. Yes, they put on some pretty strong gains, um, but it's been a while since they've been up at these heady heights. Um, and, and when you see such a broad based run, it's not just in iron ore. It's not just in copper, it's across the board. Um, if you see it in energy prices like oil, if you see it in foodstuffs like soy, there's a reason for this. And the reason is the amount of money that's pouring in this market. Money has to find a home. And by central banks reducing interest rates to the zero level or all but zero in most cases, or negative in some instances. You look at what's going on in the US bond market right now, it's a very good example of that. Um, you know, money has to go somewhere and it cannot stay in cash, it's got to go into real assets. So that's either going to be into stocks and shares, it's going to be in property, and it's going to be going into people's pocket which they're spending. And that will push demand along, and in return, people supply, um, pull the, the price up as supply needs it. There you go. Thank you very much, Mr. B. Great insight. We've covered off a lot, and it's good to see the comparison between each of those. So thank you very much. Great episode. Pleasure as always. Thanks, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Commodity Supercycle. Time will tell. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll see you in next week's show.